Welcome to Sweeping the Country once again, where you're going to find current news, world events, good news, bad news, happy news, sad news, all the in-between. You know how it goes. And today happens to be a vault episode, and I'm so happy to have with me my co-host, Mr. Jimmy Carter. He controls the vault. Hey, Jimmy. Hey, you know, it's really nice to hear from people who have been listening, and they liked, um, you know, several of the people that we've had on, John Travolta oh, yeah. and, Great. And, and others who we've heard, and so Robert. maybe you'll like this one tonight. Um, this first guy was a sex symbol in the 60s a little bit and definitely in the 70s okay. when he had movies like Smokey and the Bandit and then before oh. that in the earliest 70s, Deliverance, which was a huge movie. Now you threw but me off. That was The Longest Yard and, and and so many other things. And Burt Reynolds was was a big star, but he also was a talented person behind the camera really? who had a lot to do with his success and he was doing movies that just were silly after a while like the cannonball run Great i movie. did like the best little whorehouse in texas oh, yeah. with dolly parton no that was a musical and that was fun smoking the bandit was a lot of fun but he did a lot of movies that were like detective shows and things like that yeah and it's rare to get a superstar to ever admit to anything they have ever done wrong mm-hmm. uh you just i mean they're just perfect and they never regret anything and all that. But when I was talking to Burt Reynolds, he actually stunned me when he said, you know, Burt, you're one of the really good directors in Hollywood. Maybe you could have, I think you could have been a great director. Why did you not pursue that? I think that that was probably the biggest regret I have in my career is that after Sharky's Machine, the reviews were so good, staggeringly good, that had I uh, gone the way that... Uh, that Rob Reiner went. Uh, I could have had a career as a director, but it was it was pure greed. Uh, <laughs> it was a lot of people standing around saying, "You can always direct," and that's not true. You can't. You have to go and move in that direction when you have the heat. And uh, I had a lot of heat as an actor then, so I, I pursued that. But uh, I would much rather be uh, a Ronnie Howard right now than than uh, Dilbeck. But you love acting still, don't you? That's where your heart I, is. I, I absolutely love acting at this point in my life where I can play, hopefully, some guy who doesn't have to hold his stomach in and, and can be a little outrageous. Uh, if you can make that transition from leading man to character actor or gracefully grow into a certain age where, where they accept you, then it's, it's a great profession. It is a very unkind profession and, and full of, of very mean-spirited people if you cling desperately to, to, to being something you're not. You have to you have to give in to that and say, okay, I am uh, at an age where I have to play somebody else. And and uh, and if everybody goes along with that, and you can do it, that's the most important part. If you could do it, mm-hmm. then I think you have a chance to be around and have a full career like Stuart and and Fonda. It's hard to look at your life when it's going so fast. And now, do you even remember the '70s? I mean, we <laughs> <laughs> oh, somebody once said that uh, I met you, and so I said, "Listen, if it was between '72 and '76, I'm sorry." <laughs> I mean, I don't remember. It was so fast, and that's very well put. It was. It was like a. a, a someone said, "Climbing the mountain of success, and, and you and you slide down the other side, and it isn't until you slid halfway down that you realize." what that's all about. I mean, you don't, you have no perspective there. The air's too thin, there's no oxygen. People are professional 
friends, and they are so good at it, it's frightening. Well, Nashville producer Buddy Killen told me all the fun is getting there. All the fun is getting there, and Buddy Killen knows better than anybody. It's not about being the having the biggest publishing company in the world like Buddy had. It's, it's getting Joe Tex and those guys. I remember Buddy told me a story once. Joe Tex called him up, and Buddy kept tinkering with this record, and finally Joe Tex called him up and said, all this record needs is out. Well, that's all this movie needs is out. Mm. You really loved Minnie Pearl, didn't you? Why, you? why did you have a, why did she touch you? I toured with Minnie Pearl. Uh, one of the things that I, when I first started out, I was a, a, a kind of an MC, Bob Barker, if you will, kind of uh, in the 50s. And I toured with Minnie in 1957 with the Andrews Sisters and Albino Ray. And Minnie just took me under her wing, and I was her straight man on stage, and I loved her so much. And uh, she used to tell me where a lot of the minefields were. And uh, I, I try to love young actors and tell them now. But there, there was never a, a mean bone in Minnie's body, as you well know. She was one of the kindest, sweetest, and funniest people I've ever known. So yeah, just, yeah, sweetheart. But people, you had to be there. You had to. People yeah. don't, don't understand that unless you got into the world. I went by to see her, and and uh, about a week before she passed away, and I, I said I was just passing by, and she said, well, that's better than passing on. And I mean, she just it was like that, and and always like that with me. Well, you know, Bert, I think you do. If they count the people who have been on the tabloids the most, I'm sure Jackie Kennedy would be up there. Burt Reynolds has got to be up there somewhere, too. Yeah, I, I think I probably... I mean, you liked them so I'll, much, you I'll, built your farm near where they live. I mean, my God. Yeah, well, actually, I didn't like them that much. They, they built their farm near my <laughs> farm. Uh, it was, in, it was in, that, uh, in that order. But I, I did dump manure on the Christmas tree because I didn't think it was uh, appropriate <laughs> that they had the tallest Christmas tree. Uh, I thought God wouldn't like that. Uh, it's been a constant war with the tabloids because they've... Uh, uh, tried to put me in a jar at Harvard and, and also tried to kill me. So I, I, I think that uh, uh, when it's finally over, uh, we'll both have been blessed for each other. The only thing worse about being written about all the time is not being written about at all. That's a countryism too. Yes, it is. Nice seeing you. Thank, Thank you. you. Burt Reynolds was the world's number one box office star from 1978 to 1982. Top 10 money-making stars, and he did Evening Shade, which was a television show he did from 90 to 94. He left us a couple of years ago. I thought, Bert, you know, he was one of those that got hung up on wearing a wig. Oh, yeah, and I hated yeah. that because you become a master of the wig, you know, and yeah, it's just, yeah. uh, it, it, I understand it more than most people about that little place where the hair is going out and you've got to decide <laughs> about how are you going to keep it? You're going to look so old if you, you know, before your time, if you go bald and all that stuff like that. But Jimmy, Bert, Jimmy, wait you know, a second. We got, we got, before you go any further, have you ever checked into a hairpiece? I mean, uh, I, I, I refuse to do it pretty, pretty quickly. I mean, there was some good. pressure I, yeah. to do it. I worked with a weather guy that had it. Yeah. Uh, there were, you know, Sam Donaldson at ABC news had really? it. Howard Costell, yeah, Howard, Laura yeah. Wick, he had it. Yeah. There were a number of well-known people that had it. It was very, much the thing to do there for a while. Oh yeah. But I just let it go and somehow it was okay. But <laughs> well you I look don't good know. like I just, that. Yeah. just looked like a, it Pat Boone was somebody who had a wig that a lot of people <laughs> didn't know. I had and no there idea. were plenty of others that were out there that 
had that Sean Connery, you know, wore a piece. And we talked about that in some of the movies. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he hunt for Red October. And even in Bond movies later on, he had it. But, that's fascinating. Uh, the next guy here that does not have a wig, <laughs> he's still out there singing. And he was part of what they called the British Invasion. Okay. Uh, once the Beatles came in, that opened the door for the Rolling Stones. And then everybody really started coming in. The Animals, Herman's Hermits. The Yardbirds. I mean, it just goes on and on yeah. in the 60s, and all of them were popular. And Herman's Hermits were very, very popular. They should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They are not, but that's a whole other oh, discussion. That's a shame, yeah. But Peter was 15 when he started having hits. 15. In fact, John Lennon used to buy him drinks because he wasn't old enough to oh. get a drink, but they were out there <laughs> partying with all those people. Anyway, we talked to Peter in Beverly Hills one day and talked about you know, why does anyone live in Southern California? I think most people like stop in Detroit or New York and uh, they take a quick look around there. It usually takes about 20 minutes each city. And then you come around here and you take a look around and you say, yes, I think this is for me. Is the number one reason the weather? For me it was because I'm from Manchester where it rains 320 days a year. So I came here and it never rains here. So um, I, I was just very excited about it and, and people liked me in California, you know, and all the TV was here and all the record companies were here and they had all these like blonde girls in, in convertibles and one or two of those things had some attraction to me when I was 15. Why do you think it is that we're still listening to the music of uh, the 60s and listening to it in growing numbers all the time? Uh, I've tried to work that one out. I think it's, the, 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 it's kind of very up music and it's, I think all the ideas were used during the 60s, all the good ideas we used, like the Beatles and the Stones and things, and nobody's really, until, until a couple of English bands this year are starting to be a little bit more interesting again. You know, music's just been going round and round since then. Nobody's, there hasn't been a Beatles or somebody with like a real excitement. Do you think it's bad that people are still somewhat living in the past? I know that musicians yeah. find that to be very boring, but many of us find it very uh, soothing. I, I'm happy that people are still living in the past because I was in the past and if they still buy my records I'm very happy but you know I have an 18 year old brother who's in a band and he's very annoyed that, that radio don't give him a shot they'd rather give um, you know every time they play a Beatles record that's another three minutes that they can't play any new music so it's just have to go and start back in universities like we did you know start with the small radio stations and eventually become big. Herman's Hermit had a lot of famous people uh, in that band as far as the records were concerned. Name some of the people that uh, we might know of that were on some of your records. Yeah, they weren't in the band, it's just that I had friends who were in other bands because I used to hang out with other musicians, so Jimmy Page played on Silhouettes and Wonderful World and John Paul Jones, who was in Led Zeppelin, both of them were in Led Zeppelin, played on lots and lots of Herman's Hermits records, mostly bass, and, and John Paul Jones did all the arrangements, all the violins on there's a kind of hush and all that. Very clever boy, and, and really nice guys, and I'm glad they made it. They made more money than everybody. You were uh, pretty much a little kid when all this started. How old were you when your first song? Uh, when I, I had my first hit in England when I was 15, but I'd, I'd been in a TV series when I was 12, so I was kind of already uh, pretty well organized. And it was good to come to America when I was 15 because I was the same age as the girls who bought the magazines and the records. Excuse me, that's a motorcycle, boys and girls, and it will leave in a minute. Yeah, I was 15 when I came to America, and um, the audience were the same age as me, so they trusted me. Fools. You know, the, the old British invasion, it's called. I mean, what was it like? I mean, do you have any really conscious memories of... Uh, I know you were a very straight musician, so some, you, you probably have more conscious memories than most, but yeah. what, do you remember, what do you remember most about all that? My favorite thing was there was a TV show in England called Top of the Pops, and it was every, every Thursday, whoever was in the top ten 
would go would drive down to Manchester in all different forms of transportation. And because the Beatles were around at the same time and the Stones were around and Herman's Hermits were all at the same time, you would meet them there every Thursday. And after the gig, after that TV show where you'd, in those days people mimed to their records, it was very funny, so it wasn't really a hard job. And then we'd all get in somebody's car, whoever, whoever was able to still drive, and we'd go to London to a club called the Ad Lib. And I was 15, so they, like, I remember John Lennon, my favourite memory was that he, at the Ad Lib he used to order two Bacardis and I used to order two sodas. And I'd give him one of my sodas and he'd give me one of my Bacardis, which was the only way I could get a drink. And, you know, when you're 15 you think drinking is the coolest thing in the world. Were the Beatles as great as we remember them? I mean, do you have great memories of them? What was so great about that? They were just the best that there ever was. I mean, I, I remember playing with them at the Cavern, you know, when, before they made it. And just when they came on stage, they, without even singing, they used to blow you away. They were just amazing, charismatic, and, and they were really nice, charming guys. I mean, if you see those, when they first came to America, they opened that whole thing up. If there wasn't, wouldn't be a British invasion without the Beatles. None of the other bands would have come. Because they came, and they were charming, and they were funny, and they sent up the press, which was a totally new, new thing. You know, everyone always said, yeah, well, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going and be a GI, and they were all doing all that stuff. And the Beatles came and said, hey, what's, what do you call your haircut? Arthur. I mean, they're great lines. I mean, you had to be there, but that was one of my favorite Beatles lines. Was John Lennon a bully, as some people say? Did you ever see that side of him? He, he never tried with me because he knows that I'm, like, I always win at everything. He was the most, people, people misunderstood him. I found him to be the most accessible one. But he was single at the time, so that's probably why he was out in all the places I was out. I know you're in a book uh, called Who Killed Brian Jones or something like that. Yeah. Uh, did you kill Brian Jones? I don't think they suggested I killed him, but it, it says all these like weird things. and I, it, It's got me in all kinds of trouble because it says in the book that me, Brian, and this girl, Anita Pallenberg, used to sleep together. And I said on the radio once that, no, she was never there. And people like misunderstood that. It was only a joke. Believe me, it was just a joke. And uh, he was just a sad guy. I mean, he was kicked out of the band. and He, used to, he didn't die from drugs. He just drank like three bottles of white wine and went swimming. And you know as well as anybody, Jimmy, that that's impossible. Yeah. How many records did you sell? You remember to count them? In America, we did good. We sold like uh, we got paid for about 51 million records in America. So we probably sold 300. And who knows how many we sold? We What's got your paid favorite for one that's still today that you still don't mind doing? Actually, I, I've started to. I go through periods of of liking different ones, but right now I'm enjoying Henry VIII again. Strangely enough. Strangely enough, for sure. That was like a novelty song, right? Yeah, well, you know, it's a song my grandfather taught me, so it was, it was around for a long time. It was a 1910 song, and he taught it me in, in the 50s, and in the 60s we did it for a joke. I mean, we actually did it for a joke. I couldn't remember the words, so I said second verse, same as the first, and that became the thing. And now when I go on stage, the audience all know it, three-year-olds to 80-year-olds. Most of my fans are 80. No, they're about 36. All right, say hello to everybody Montgomery since... Uh we might use this for radio. Oh, yeah, I remember Montgomery. That was a great. We did a gig there, the Big Bam gigs. With uh, One year we did with Jerry Lee Lewis. He opened the show for us. He didn't like that. And we had a great time. I remember we used to do, one day we'd do Birmingham, and the next day we'd do Montgomery in that huge, huge building. And it was always just like a great, great place to play. You can hear Peter Noon every Saturday on Sirius XM, 4 o'clock Central, 2 o'clock Pacific, 60s Gold. He's still out there doing it. Really? Uh, he's talking about it at the very end there. Uh, my hometown radio station, WBAM, where I learned how to be a radio person in the production wow. room. But he used to play there at shows all the time and definitely remembered it. It was one of the first places he played and so many others in Montgomery and in Birmingham. So uh, Peter awesome. Noon, still out there touring all the time, lives near Santa Barbara, California. 
And uh, another guy that was a Southern California guy moved in from the East. You know, there, there used to be things called booth announcers or announcers. Yep. Every show had one. Uh, sometimes they did commercials, but sometimes they handled the audience. Mm-hmm. And this guy was the announcer and sort of sidekick at times for Dick Clark. He did the original American Bandstand and then moved with Dick and did American Music Awards and all the other shows that Dick, with all the announcer was always Charlie O'Donnell. Hmm. And later years, he did a bunch of other things, but he was definitely known as the voice on the announcer of Wheel of Fortune, oh, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Really brilliant voice to Joker's Wild, $100,000 Pyramid, and on the American Music Awards. And these these announcers were smooth as glass. Oh, you know, yeah. we all wish we were. Anyway, I talked to Charlie on the set of Wheel of Fortune one day, and we talked about, you know, Charlie, you know the secret. All right, Charlie, if you can answer this, then me and you will be able to invent a game show and we'll be rich. <laughs> we'll make all the money. What's the big deal about this show? Have you ever figured it out? Yeah, long time ago. Everybody can play it. It's one of those games that is not taxing. You, the housewife can be ironing or walk past the uh, television set and take a look at it and stop and solve the puzzle and go on with their work. Every, anybody can play this. You know, it's, it's Hangman. It's a game we all played as children. And, uh, you know, Pat and Vanna make it so easy. But I think that's the, uh, the secret. But isn't it amazing that it's the most successful television show of all time? I mean, even bigger than Dick Clark. Mm, how do I answer that? <laughs> I have to be very careful with that one. You mean somebody who's actually bigger than Dick? Yeah, Merv is. Um, I think it's a combination of, uh, as what I said before, the game itself. Like any successful game show, there has to be a game, a beginning, middle, and end. This certainly has, and it has a big payoff. But it's fun. And uh, I think over the years, we've become a family of sorts, you know, with Pat and Vanna. Um, I think people kind of accept this into their home. Not, not me as much as Pat and Vanna because they don't see me. But uh, they, they love these two people. They really do. And we go out on a lot of promotional tours. Everybody wants to see Vanna. Mm-hmm. And she is as wonderful in person as she is here. She really is. Let me ask you a career question here. You, you hung out with Dick from really the Philadelphia days? Yeah, right? from 19. I started on Bandstand in 1958. And um, I'm still with him. So I just celebrate, I don't know, 34, 35 years with Dick. And I still do uh, the American Music Awards every year. And uh, we have a lot of friends like you who come in from Nashville. And um, TV bloopers and practical jokes, whatever he has going, you know, jams and jellies. And actually, Ed McMahon, Dick, and I started out our careers in Philadelphia, so we've all been remained very, very good friends over over a period of almost forty years. Now and I feel as old as Ralph Emery. <laughs> well, Dick, it's a phenomenon like uh, Wheel of Fortune, really. Yes. I mean, everything everything he touches pretty much has turned to go. Yeah, absolutely. Except his hair. His hair never gets any darker. Do you notice that? Man's three years older than me, and I have the white hair. Go figure that out. What's your best memory from the Philadelphia days? Oh, the kids. The kids. The kids were, were the show. And um, seeing them grow up and uh, seeing my own family grow up with them, uh, just good feelings about the kids. And, of course, the artists. The artists were all very, very special to us because we were, we were at the very beginning of rock and roll. So we all kind of grew up together. And it's interesting to see where music has gone through the years. Dick Clark, I guess you could say easily, is probably a workaholic and a perfectionist, would you say? I used to think he was a workaholic, and I guess that, that may be... I don't know how, how, to, how to construe that word. Uh, his life is, is working. and It's not necessarily a workaholic. That, that kind of connotes a, a negativism. And it, he just loves what he's doing. If he weren't doing that, I, I think he'd die. He likes being in the studio. He likes being in the office. He likes creating things. He likes being on camera. Um, pretty much like we all do. You know, you're, you're a, a performer. I'm a performer. 
they take that away from us, we may as well go and find a place, a cave, and, and lie down. Uh, a little bit, is he perfectionist? Um, I think he, t he tries uh, very, very hard to make sure that everything is perfect. Uh, Merv is the same way I think Pat is. I think any, any performer, uh, a top-level performer, has that going for him. I really do. Miss Band Bandstand's gone. I couldn't believe it ever went away. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's gone. But I, knowing Dick, it'll probably be back in another form in about a year. American Music Awards are ultra successful. In uh, fact, they're higher rated than the Grammys. I yeah, believe. Yeah, we had that a, doesn't uh, thrill some people in the industry, but I mean, I it's, know that. But uh, it's. I think we went to our 18th year when we first started with the show. Everybody was scratching their heads, saying, "Gosh, is this thing going to happen?" A lot of the artists never showed up. Those who were. Um, receiving the awards, but now it is, it is a bona fide big-time award show. And uh, to be a recipient of a, uh, an American uh, Music Awards uh, trophy is, is a big thing, it really is. And everyone, all, you know, it's, it's international. Uh, a couple of years ago, we started through satellite, we started going all over the globe. So as far as music is concerned, and you know, and everybody in Nashville knows, it's worldwide, and with our cameras, we can go anywhere. Are you a rock and roller? Always. I was born and raised a rock and roller. Yeah. See, I'm a singer also. I'm, I studied opera for about five years. My mouth came out blues or country, so that's where I was all those years. Any uh, bad live show bloopers? No, not that I, You've I would tell you about. that? <laughs> not that I would tell you about. I, actually, I've, I've been very fortunate. I haven't made a lot of mistakes um, on the air. You want to knock on wood real quick? For uh, <laughs> no, I think I probably made my share, but nothing comes to mind, really. That's good. I mean, I didn't yeah. know. I hadn't checked Kermit, whatever his name was, Kermit. Oh, uh, Kermit Schaefer. Kermit Schaefer's yeah. book to see if there's any Charlie O'Donnell's in, in there. No, I, I did back in the days of live anyway, so there wouldn't be anything on, on tape to nail me. How about you? Uh, <laughs> uh, they've often made, made them uh, in a positive yeah. way, I guess. I've made the boo-boos, but I turn yeah. them into a joke. So I'm kind of surprised to see you, and I wasn't joking. In my wallet, I just happened to bring my, your card with All me, right. which you gave me a couple of weeks ago, and I was about to call you on Wednesday. See that? Ladies and gentlemen, can there you believe is. this? The Crook and Chase card with, with Charlie <laughs> O'Donnell, true. ladies and gentlemen. He has That's a much true. better voice than I'll ever dream uh, of having no, no, in no. my daytime. By the way, what's your signature thing that you used to have to do for American Bandstand? Could you do it in your sleep? Uh, American or, Bandstand... Uh, just, you know, and, and Ellen get it, here's Dick, and I do something similar here with Wheel of Fortune, mm -hmm. you know, with a wheel. I think McMahon may have stolen it from me over the years. Right? Here's Dick Clark, him, that kind of know. thing? Yeah. All right. But uh, my signature is basically with the things that the camera doesn't see, and that's what I do with the uh, studio mm -hmm. audience. You know, I just have a lot of fun with them during warm-ups. Yeah, he was somebody, I mean, I looked up to these guys. I, I got to meet uh, Johnny Olson, mm. who was the announcer on Price is right. Oh, Come on down. He's the one that invented yeah. all of that stuff. Everybody oh else, God. you know, and Johnny Olson was truth. There are consequences. Oh, yeah. And all those kind of people. And, oh, God, there was there was uh, Ernie Anderson, who was a real curmudgeon guy, yeah. who was uh, the ABC announcer. And he was Philip Thomas, let's see, Philip Anderson, who is the director, who's done, who did a lot of shows. I think Boogie Nights was one of his movies. But oh, wow. his dad was Ernie Anderson. And he was the guy that went the Love Boat. Oh yeah! Tonight on the ABC Sunday Night Movie, <laughs> the Love Boat. You know that kind of thing. That is back and in the day. I always thought those guys were just so cool. And Charlie O'Donnell was just the nicest guy in the world. That was back in the day, Jimmy, when you didn't have to modulate. Like now, there's equipment where I can sound like me and do the voice of some huge movie, right? And modulate my yeah. voice and and fix. A lot of the voiceover guys, if you talk to them on the phone now, they sound like I do. But when they send you material, it sounds nothing like I do. And it's just yeah, it's, crazy. They, but those guys really. These guys had to, without any good yeah, equipment. Yeah, right. They right. just had smooth and they were able to enunciate. Yeah. And uh, they just were amazing. And uh, 
Charlie O'Donnell left us in 2018 at the age of 78, but he was cool, cool, just a, just a nice man. You know, some people in this business are jerks yeah. and some people are just, Peter Noon's a great guy. We've, yeah. we've gone, I've went to England with him. I've been all over the place with him. Uh, we've been really one of my best friends in the music business probably is Peter and uh, and Charlie O'Donnell was one of those great guys. And Bert, we had some friends. I wish I'd known him earlier because we had a lot of similar friends in Los Angeles and other places. Uh, he was a business partner of my friend, Buddy Killen. Mm-hmm. They owned some po- folks restaurants together and had a company called Bandit Tree. A uh, tree was Buddy's and Bandit was his. Bandit Tree. That so anyway, sense. all those people had something to do with my life. And hopefully you you found them interesting. Indeed, I did. In fact, I want to one more time just hit uh, Peter Noon is still on the air. So you said Sirius XM. When is his yes. show? Is is it on? Every Saturday afternoon about 4 o'clock Central Time, 5 Eastern and 2 Pacific, 60s Gold. And he plays he plays mostly, you know, oldies, of course, yeah, but he sure. plays some things you may have never heard before popular in england yeah you know when he was i'm gonna listen to it I, I, you, you just got me to go i'm gonna look it up uh sirius xm peter new check it out uh all interesting stuff and great stuff introducing us to new people one generation that may not know who they were of course burt reynolds a big part of my life growing up i loved him as an actor uh movie star and i uh, just love Smokey and the bandit i even love you you were joking about cannonball run I love that. Oh movie. yeah, Dom I love all that stuff. And Peter Noon, I'm Henry the Eighth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know all those kind of songs Good are great. Stuff. And Charlie O'Donnell, we'll love fortune. fortune. Indeed, all good stuff. Again, thank you, a Jimmy. A Griffin production. That is, I can hear him right now. Hey, thank you for joining yeah. us on the Vault this week. Next week we'll do it again. We'll grab somebody else. Thank you for listening to Sweeping the Country. I'm Derek Walker. He's I'm Jimmy Carter. We'll see you next time right here on Sweeping the Country. Good day.